to episode 120 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And we have our first returning guest in Claire. Claire, hello. So you may remember Claire from episode number, I don't remember, where we talked about, I think, books about grief. And we talked about D.E. Stevenson and who else did we talk about? Marjorie Sharp. Marjorie Sharp, lovely. Um, And we had such a fun time. We thought we'd ask Claire back. It's been a year and a bit, two years, I'm not sure. But we're delighted to have Claire all the way from uh, Vancouver in Canada. And Claire, welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, In today's episode, we will be talking about uh, inspiration for travel. Do we get it from fiction or nonfiction primarily? And in the second half, two books that Claire suggested, uh, The Morning Gift by Eva Ibbotson and another D.E. Stevenson, The English Air. Uh, looking forward to that. That's Air, A-I-R, in case of any ambiguity. And in the, yeah, we'll get to that later. But let's start, as we always do, by asking uh, how people are, what they're reading. And why don't we start with our guest? Claire, how are you doing? What are you reading? I'm good. This is actually a very fun time to ask me that question because I've had the best month of reading that I can remember in a long time mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of standout books. Now, part of it is I've been on leave from work for a while. I've just gone back to work this week, but I've had the last six months off and was reading mostly things on my e-reader. And then I got access to a library again uh, at the end of July. So I've been able to read old books and a greater <laughs> variety of books. So it's I've been going giddy. Uh, but, you know, the highlights for me is there is a collection of essays by Wendell Berry, who's mm-hmm. an American poet, farmer, environmentalist, essayist, novelist, who wears a lot of hats. Uh, it's called The World Ending Fire, and it's just a wonderful collection about, you know, his passion for community and the land, as well as his frustration, um, modern views of progress. Um, but they're essays that span from the 1960s until gosh, the early 2010s. So it's a long view, uh, but a very consistent worldview from him. So that's a really interesting collection. I'm glad you say that because it's the best recommendation in that it's one that I have on my shelves waiting to be read. Yes, it's one, those, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those names I just kept hearing come up, particularly on the podcast, What Should I Read Next? You'd often mention him. So I thought I must try yeah. some. I've not read any yet, but I've got that one. Waiting. I'd encountered him as a poet first. Um, but, you know, he's quite popular these days um, because of these, you know, the views are pretty mainstream yeah. now, whereas he started out, I think, more in the wilderness. So uh, he's deservedly popular for our times. Uh, I also read The nice. Princess of Siberia by Christine Sutherland, which is an old biography from, I think, 1984 about Maria Volkonsky, who followed her Decemberist husband into Siberian exile. So... That had been what I've been looking at for a long time. I think it was recommended back in, or at least mentioned back like in the first issue of Slightly Foxed Quarterly. And I had taken a note down while looking through the archives a long time ago, but it's wonderful. Highly, highly recommended. I loved uh, Tom Lake and Patchett's new book. I thought was wonderful. I couldn't Mm. put that one down. And then most recently, a couple of days ago, I finished Fanny Herself by Edna Ferber, um, who was a hugely popular American writer, won the Pulitzer. I don't, I mean, Rachel, you read a lot of American authors when you were living in New York. Did you mm. ever read anything by Ferber? I think I did. I think I read her most famous one, which I can't remember the name of now. So uh, I think she won so big. Yeah, she won yeah, the Pulitzer for so that. big. Yeah. Um, this one is apparently her, her most autobiographical. Um, and 
might have been, I don't know if it's a typical place for me to have started with her or not, but I loved it. It was about a, uh, a young woman who grows up in a small Midwestern town and then establishes her career in Chicago. And, you know, it talks about what it means to be working, what callings are, also what it means to be Jewish in these settings. Um, it's just a really interesting novel and very, you know, very American, very of that era. It's from 1917. I just loved it. That sounds great. I've had So Big downloaded as an audiobook for a long time, but I've not not started it yet. But um, I, got on the I kind of just want to read everything now. So I mean, and she, yeah. <laughs> she's most, I think today she's most famous for her books that got adapted into, you know, into um, films like Giant or Showboat, obviously became a very famous musical. Um, but yeah, I'm intrigued by the novels. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you're having a great reading time. Wonderful. Uh, Rachel, are you having a great reading time? Um, yeah, I have actually uh, the last few weeks because I've had a couple of weeks off in between jobs. Um, and I went to Hay on Wye, as we discussed last time. Yes. And had a wonderful time there buying not as many books as I thought I would, actually. I was very restrained. But I picked up quite a few old Agatha Christie's paperbacks, which I devoured while I was on holiday and left most of them behind. All of them also, uh, even though I didn't manage to guess any of the murderers because I'm utterly useless at doing that, all of them I found were written in, within a very short time period of each other. And all of all of the murderers were like exactly the same person in each of the books. I thought, <laughs> by the time I got to the third book, I really should have figured this out. But um, each time I was like, oh, I would never have guessed it when I got to the end. But I had a really good time reading those because I've not read any Agatha Christie's in ages. So I think I read The Mystery of the Blue Train, which I, which was probably my favourite. I love anything set on a train. Um, and the only one of her books I've read, and might be the only one of her books, set on a plane called Death in the Clouds, which was um, a nice alternative to a sort of locked room mystery. Someone dies on a plane and how do, how do they manage to do it? Um so yeah, I would recommend those ones. And then recently in the charity shop, I won't talk too much about these because I know we're going to talk about them next time, Simon. But mm. uh, I picked up three books by Jane Gardim, the Old Filth Trilogy, which I've heard a lot about over the years and lots of people have, have said, oh, it's really, really good, but I've never tried it. And I just picked them picked them up because they were there and I opened the first page of Old Filth just thinking, oh, I'll obviously meaning to read the books for the podcast first and um I read the first page and then just couldn't put it down and that was the the rest of my week gone reading those three books back to back absolutely marvellous no have you read any uh, Jane Gardam Claire yes I've, I think I've read everything maybe not every short story oh, wow. but okay. I, yeah I went through a, it's as Rachel says once you pick her up it's very very hard to want to put her down even some of the stranger books Faith Fox stands out as one of the weirder ones in my mind, but she's wonderful. Yeah, I can't wait to read more. Yeah, I have read Old Filth, but I did not realise there were sequels. So um, looking forward to the next oh, episode. Not, not sequels, they're retellings. Or retellings, yes. yes. Um, and I'm trying to think, I don't think I've read those Agatha Christie's. That, uh, well, I might have read Death in the Clouds, which I believe for our North American listeners was... Uh, publishes death in the air in america or at least not sure about canada but um, that is a bizarrely yeah. minute change yeah like some of the title changes i think were just power plays as far as i can tell um, <laughs> my, 
my favorite retelling a uh, retitling of an Agatha Christie certainly in, in America was um one called Hickory Dickory Dock that was retitled as Hickory Dickory Death in America just to really make it really clear what you're getting when you go in well and I get to live in Canada so we get a weird mix of sometimes yeah. <laughs> we have British titles sometimes we have North American titles American titles and it gets quite confusing yeah I'm sure <laughs> especially if you think you're buying a book that you don't own yet but uh that would out. be horrible <laughs> Yeah, that would be very sad. <laughs> Had that with an E.M. Delafield once. I thought I was getting one that I didn't already own, but it was just the American title. Oh, no. It's so Yeah. Um, well, and what am I reading? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm in the middle of an Elizabeth von Arnhem that I'd not read before, um, The Jasmine Farm. Oh. Have you read The Jasmine Farm? I haven't. I've no. given up on it several times. Oh dear. Interesting. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> one of her least well-known ones, and I'm enjoying it now. <laughs> but I can see okay. why you would give up. Um, <laughs> it's uh, what I've, what I, the reason that I found it difficult is it starts at this big dinner party with all these different people, and there's so many characters, many of whom only say one thing. And I had to like write down a list of who they all were and how they connected, because often she doesn't tell you how they're connected for a bit. They'll they'll talk for a bit, and then maybe a few pages later she'll say that was her niece or something um and at, at the at the center of it is is this uh, adulterous affair that is going to cause ripples out to many people but um but you have got a lot of flotsam and jetsam to get through before you get there and the jasmine farm comes about halfway through the book and now i've just got to the jasmine farm and i'm i'm referring it now that this uh there's fewer people and she's settled down a bit but yeah i don't think i don't think it's going to be one of the all-time great elizabeth Arnhem's, but but i don't think i've read any Elizabeth Flanagan that I didn't at least like. Speaking of Elizabeth Flanagan, introduction to Sally, now out from British Library, a uh, women writers series recently, if anyone's been w- waiting for that one. Um, and that's why I'm reading The Jasmine Farm, uh, cards on the table. They're like, Elizabeth Flanagan does very well. What else can we publish by her? <laughs> so see. There's, a, there's very few that aren't in print with somebody now. Yeah, I think probably her entire back catalogue is out now, is it not? Uh, I think it's basically just Jasmine Farm, The Benefactress, In the Mountains, and maybe Princess Priscilla's Fortnite. You know I love two of those. (laughs) (laughs) One of them Uh, may in fact come up during our discussion. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Yes. Well, I shall say no more. But let's start that discussion. So, um, Claire, you go, this is actually a suggestion that you gave us in the list of suggestions you gave us last time. I don't know if you'd remember it was one of your suggestions. <laughs> but if like you can cast your mind back, yeah. <laughs> back to then, why did you, <laughs> or why might you have suggested this as a, as a topic? Um, I Well, should we state again what the topic is? Oh, sorry. Yeah, great. So this is why we need someone who knows what they're doing. Why don't you remind us, Claire? <laughs> Um, I think the topic, Simon, is um, <laughs> when we're traveling, are we looking more to fiction books or nonfiction books for inspiration? Or I guess in Simon's world, are we looking at any books for inspiration? <laughs> yeah, secret third option. Holiday. Yes, yeah. <laughs> secret third option. There's three people today. You can have a third option. Well, that's true. Uh, yes, that is indeed the topic. Yeah. And I mean, I it came up with it because I am always planning a trip, even if it seems very, very far in the future. And, you know, so many of my trips come from places that I got interested in through books at some point, whether it was a year before or 10 or 20 years before um, that, you know, have lodged in my mind is somewhere that would be interesting to see one day. So for me, it's certainly an area that I'm 
very interested in, but there is also a difference between whether it's the, the nonfiction world that you're getting your inspiration from or the fictional one. So I thought that would be interesting to chat through. Lovely, yes. Um, well, let's start with, uh, Rachel, why don't you start us off with any, any initial thoughts? Well, I mean, you know me, Simon, I love a good uh, a good trip and I really love reading books set in places where I've not been and I do find books really inspirational. Um, I don't necessarily always end up going to places where I've read a book and want to, but I normally will be adding places to my very long list and I will return to one of my favourite books. It's not Emma, guys, because it doesn't actually go anywhere. Is can I, before you say what it is, I, I was going to no. say, I've written down a Lyrian Spring to like, will I, can I cross this off on the Rachel Bingo card? <laughs> it's the drinking well game version of tier books. <laughs> you know what, we should, we should create that as a PDF. <laughs> um, it is indeed a Lyrian Spring. <laughs> Um, I have wanted to go to all of the locations in there ever since I first read it. So it's set on the Dalmatian coast, which is, I believe, I need to actually go back and have a look at the geography of it. But I I think nowadays it is modern day Croatia and Italy. Um, But in the book itself, it's sort of several countries that, um, because it's set before World War II, so the boundaries have changed slightly. But they go to Split, um, which was is called Spilato in the book. It's got all the Italian names. And I that was before, this was probably about 20 years ago. I must have read the book for the first time, which is depressing. Um, and back then, Croatia wasn't um, a, a tourist destination at all. So it was the first time I'd read about that part of the world. And since then, I've seen lots of people go off and go there. Game of Thrones was was filmed in in um, Split as well. I think, so. as well. Yeah, so it's become like a mecca for tourists. So it's but what's really interesting is reading about what it was like before tourism, before anybody went there. Um, and I guess I kind of really want to go. I want to go and visit all the locations from Illyrian Spring because I'd like to imagine the characters there and and relive the story. But I'm afraid that I won't be able to do that because I'm sure much of what is described in the book is no longer there, which is a bit sad which is the I think the difficulty of being inspired by books particularly of being inspired by fiction books in particular when you're reading something that's set that was written quite a long time ago are you going to be disappointed by trying to retrace character steps and finding that the world that's described in the book is has disappeared mm-hmm. yeah that's my first thought thank you um you should definitely make it to Croatia though because it's wonderful Yes, I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of many places that we're going to mention that I have not been. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> it's so painful uh, as a North American. You guys are so close to everything. <laughs> <laughs> but what's even closer is this country I live in already. <laughs> so. It's true. And I mean, my God, there's so much literature about that. <laughs> so I think certainly for me growing up, you know, so many children's stories are set in Britain. So much of what you read is talking about, um, you know, London or things like, you know, I, I think of reading A.A. Milne poems and the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. And th- you want to go see those things as a child, right? I think that inspires your first dreams. And for me, also very clearly, the Anne of Green Gables books made it mm. incredibly important to uh, go on a pilgrimage to PEI. And 
that lives up to everything. I mean, it's sort of sort of a fantasy Anne world now in the Cavendish area, but the red beaches, all of it is extraordinary. Uh, but I think, you know, as Rachel says, the issue is fiction, especially the kind of fiction we read. You know, mm-hmm. we have a vision of a place 80 or 90 years ago mm-hmm. from yeah. those books, which, you know, war, economic changes, all of that. It's it's a lost world, even if you end up in the same country um, where the book was set in so many cases. Yeah. Uh, talking about children's books, have you read, either of you, and it's quite possible that one of you recommended it to me, um, How the Heather Looks by Joan Bodger? No. Yes. Yes, which is, it does exactly that, that, doesn't one. it? It's um, she's an American, mm-hmm. um, and who then later, in fact, lived in Canada, who uh, takes her family around England looking for all the place, all the or Britain around all the places where children's stories happened, and I really enjoyed it. It's always nice to see your country through a tourist eyes as well. I think it's always interesting mm-hmm. to see what they what they notice, but um, but also yeah, going to the to the heart of all those uh, locations or at least um, archetypes of those locations. And which is one of one of the few sort of uh, deliberately fiction-based traveling things, or well, not traveling, but holiday things I ever did was uh, when I was maybe eighteen. I, um, our family went on a tour of different locations from children's books, and mostly in the south Aww. of England. Uh, yeah, and I can't remember um, all the places we went, but we did go to the Hundred Acre Wood from Winnie the Pooh fame, or I think it's actually just called the sort of. 20 acre wood or so i don't know it's a lot fewer acres in reality <laughs> but uh but you can go to the poo sticks bridge where that was invented you can if you uh if you can work out where it is on a map you can go and trespass on the driveway of aml i suppose i shouldn't recommend recommend that necessarily but but i did do that the house was for sale a few years ago wasn't it i remember it was yeah rocking up at that point yeah there's a bit of a campaign to try and get the National Trust to buy it, but they did not want to. So, uh, but because it used to be a farm, it is marked on OS maps. So uh, you can Ooh. find it that way. <laughs> Top Hot tips from Simon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Helping you trespass up and down the land. Um, and yeah, that, that was a really lovely experience. And again, it wasn't like opening my eyes to different cultures or countries, obviously. It wasn't very far from where I grew up, um, all things considered. But, uh, but it was lovely to go and see the places that inspired those authors. I think where I run into problems with fiction is when I don't want to travel in English speaking places. Um, mm. <laughs> there, I mean, so Illyrian Spring, great example of an English book set somewhere else, but not, you know, there's certain authors who did that uh, as, as their go-to but there's not enough fiction in translation. There's especially not enough contemporary, uh, I would call it commercial fiction in translation, right? So if I want to go mm. to Germany, and I, I usually want to go to Germany like every year, but I, <laughs> I limit myself to every second year. I don't necessarily want to read World War II or, sp- or Cold War spy novels about the places yeah. I'm going. <laughs> I would love to hear more about what they're actually like today or how people live or what are the contemporary tensions. And there's some very serious, heavy fiction in translation. When you go to a bookstore in Germany, there is a lot more than that on the shelves, right? They, you know, yeah. <laughs> There's lots of modern historical fiction. There's romantic fiction. There's all of that. There's crime novels. There's all sorts of things set with a strong sense of place, but they just never make it into translation. So, you know, I, I went to Northern Germany this summer. I was like, well, I have Elizabeth von Arnhem. Like, 
I can read the Bad Actress, <laughs> which is set in Pomerania or The Adventures of Elizabeth and Rugen. Um, so, you know, that was great. Those books are 100 or more years old. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly okay, actually, as a guide, okay. especially on Rugen. Uh, a lot of the landscape is still very similar. We're driving around in cars now, not carriages, but there, there's enough familiarity there. But it's just there's a lack of options uh, for a lot of things. You know, Slovenia, I didn't find much uh, when I was planning my Slovenia trip to inspire me. <laughs> I have to say, that was that was sad. <laughs> <laughs> I did read a really good book that was, um, I think, Bosnian, actually, but, uh, but near the border, maybe, um, called Cats the Rabbit by Lana Bastovic, I think. But, um, which, uh, it's something I found useful for finding modern contemporary fiction is the European Union Prize for Literature. My friend used to work there, so she sort mm. of clued me into it. But they they announce they have many prizes winners every year. I think it's often like ten or so people win win the prize. And there's no guarantee they'll be translated, but it's much more likely they'll be translated. And those are yeah, good for that. It's sort of when you think as you say, like English speaking publishing world is very bad at publishing things from other languages, whereas you know, English is English and American and Canadian and Australian books are much better at being translated into those other yes. languages yeah um germany another country i've not been to but um <laughs> one day <laughs> it's not quite true i, actually. I, I once spent a, I was spent a morning there <laughs> when i was staying in switzerland we crossed the border for about an hour <laughs> hey, at least you've been to switzerland switzerland is yeah. wonderful you can go see the land of heidi there we go there's another yeah, well, there you go, which I haven't read it. fictional book inspiring people <laughs> <laughs> Your mention of Anne of Green Gables reminds me of the wonderful bit in the um, Provincial Lady in America, where I know this is not Anne of Green Gables, but it's just North American literature, where she's very, very keen to go and see um, Lisa May Alcott's house, and everyone is very des- oh. desperate for her to do other events and other things, and she's just eventually just like stamps her foot and is like, "No, I'm going to go and see it. I'm here. I want to do this." <laughs> uh, that is, is worthwhile. Um, that is a good thing to stamp your feet about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we've talked a lot about fiction, but uh, how about nonfiction? I mean, I have fun with nonfiction because it's so many things, right? I can, I love a travel memoir. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. But I love history books. I mean, food, like food books, food memoirs, um, mm. I find also a really interesting way to look in um, on culture. So I like the variety they offer. I mean, as I say, I'm often just really taking anything I can get in English about the places (laughs) I'm going. But this, I started off my big six months this year in New Zealand for two months. And you think New Zealand, English speaking, Commonwealth country, ridiculously strong links with Canada, because literally everyone I told I was going to New Zealand was like, oh yeah, that's actually where my family's from, or I have, like, (laughs) my brother lives there. And same when I got there, they all had someone in Canada. Really, really hard to find a lot of books about, uh, even in our well-stocked library. So I had fun with a lot of very strange and obscure memoirs from pioneer days or um, like random journalism from the 1950s or 60s, giving me a portrait of New Zealand life at that point. So that was a very fun way to get to know New Zealand Outside of just reading like a lot, a lot, a lot of Essie Summers's romantic novels, uh, which are also <laughs> a fairly good way to get a sense of New Zealand. Uh, she was an excellent boon to the tourism industry there. <laughs> excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rachel, how about you? Any, any nonfiction that's inspired you for traveling? 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy reading travel memoirs as well. And I particularly like reading ones set in the kind of mid century. Um, but I also really like women's travel memoirs of the 19th century. So I've been really inspired by Marianne North's books about her travels through America and Australia in the 19th century by Isabella Bird's um, A Lady's Life in the Rocky mm. Mountains. Um, I would love to do that journey. And recently there was a TV show in Britain with three, I can't remember who, wasn't it? Ruby Wax was one of them. And another couple of, of people actually redid the trip. Um, and it was really recently on BBC One, so it's probably still on BBC iPlayer for those of us who can get it. And they retraced her steps and, and showed just what an uh, incredible and daring and difficult journey it must have been back then especially for a woman traveling by herself. And I really love Sybil Bedford's travel writing and mm. her book, A Visit to Donatavio, which is called Something Else in America. The Sudden View, that I've got an American edition, um, is an amazing depiction of Mexico in the 1940s, 50s. And I would very much like, I've not been yet, but it's reading that book has made me desperate to go. So it's quite quite high up on my list of priorities and some other travel books that I love I am um, I mean I, I am inspired by pretty much every travel thing I read and I have an enormous list on my computer of places like right when I go here I'll, I'll go there and I haven't managed to tick a lot of them off I was really inspired as well by um, Penelope Lively's memoir of her childhood in Egypt which is called Oleander Jacaranda and Again, the world that she describes is is gone. Um, and I don't know whether it would actually be a nice trip or not, because I think I might just be disappointed by seeing how much has changed. But it's interesting in the book because she describes the Egypt of her childhood so evocatively. And then she, in, in her memoir, she actually goes back in the 1980s to go and see what it's like. And her house has been knocked down. And there's a kind of all that's left is like a well or something that she recognises the street corner from. Um, and you see how much has changed there in, in, in really, I think only about 50 years or something. But um, yeah, those kinds of, of books that I don't necessarily read contemporary accounts of people's travels, but I like reading 20th century and um 19th century ones though that I think probably the the most relatable one I've read is I do love Bill Bryson and his um notes what what is the notes from a small country or something about Britain in the 90s is so hilarious because every single thing he says is so painfully true and it took me right back to 90s life and also made me feel really old um, how awful, awful it was going to like seaside towns, and thankfully British tourism has moved on since then. So we're, I think, we're a much more welcoming country um, to the to the tourists than we were, particularly to American tourists who expect a certain level of comfort when they travel. It's much <laughs> cleaner than it used to be. Yeah, <laughs> I will say, like the the EU expansion and all of the the. Central Europeans who came over and made everything a lot cleaner is very nice as someone who remembers <laughs> traveling before and then after. <laughs> I just, I, I, Bill Bryson did scar me for life about Australia though, in a sun, in a sunburned country really scared me off. I think I was young and impressionable when I read that and I'm sorry, Australia. 
one day <laughs> I will get over that and come see you. Um, but and there's definitely, I definitely bits of Australia, aren't there? So like Melbourne's not yeah. really hot. You can go there. <laughs> it's just all the th- all the scary things, all, all the scary things that can get you. Oh, yeah, that's um, fair. Yeah, yeah. I definitely do love those like outsider travel memoirs. So you know, like Bryson when he's traveling around, um, and then Karl Chapek did quite a few before the Second World War, where he you know went to Italy, he went to England, I think he went to Scandinavia. Um, and it's sort of a humorous outsider's view. Uh, and then George Mikash did that sort of between the wars. He was a Hungarian humorist who ended up in uh, England and was based there. But kind of, you know, he wrote a lot about the English, uh, but also about other countries in Europe. And I remember when I was first going to Switzerland, his was one of the only books I could find about Switzerland. <laughs> so that's how I got into him. I do like on that similar um, line I enjoyed um, Chang Yi's The Silent Traveller in Oxford. He did lots of silent traveller books, um, mostly in the UK initially in the in the thirties and forties, and then branched out into various other nations in later. But um, yeah, I, as I said earlier, I always enjoy seeing travel accounts of my own country. I think more than I enjoy travel accounts of other people's countries. Um, if I'm reading about reading about a different country, I prefer it to be about someone who is from that country and has lived there a long time rather than rather than a, a travel guide um and my own sort of travel uh, is uh, as i said I'm, I, not that often outside of the uk and when it is it tends not to be based on things i've read but it might be to go and see authors houses even mm. if uh, they haven't read anything about them uh, and i've probably mentioned on the podcast before the last time i went to canada indeed the first time i went to canada in 2017 took a day trip to see Stephen Leacock's house I had lived in this sort of uh, as it turned out fantasy that while Stephen Leacock was not known in the UK that people spoke of him fondly and often in Canada but um that turned out not to be the case nobody he is drifted like, off to school it, reading yeah. lists yeah. <laughs> people tend to have heard of him because like a building they knew would be named after him or something <laughs> but nobody I think there's still like the him. Leacock awards and things like yeah, that yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> things named after him still for sure they may not remember I think if you say say the names of a couple of the books they might know but they might not piece it together on their own basically everyone i spoke to who didn't know him i was like oh they're, they're clearly an american living in canada <laughs> otherwise <laughs> otherwise they'd be <laughs> they love him but took a trip to he lived in a place called aurelia which uh there's no reason why anybody outside of aurelia should know that <laughs> aurelia is it's uh, <laughs> certainly everyone i spoke to in toronto who i said i was going to spend a day in aurelia was was mystified that anyone would choose to do that but it was um but it, for me it was the most exciting thing i did was going and seeing his house and his ground and all that sort of thing but I, perhaps you... because i was sorry sorry i was gonna say did you have anything planned for your upcoming trip to canada have you found anything else mm, i so I haven't found anything literary related for, so uh, f- I don't know if I mentioned here, but I will, uh, yes, I can't if you've already said if it was before we started recording or not, but I'm seeing Claire in about a week and a half in Vancouver and then spending, oh, so I'm spending a week in Vancouver and a week in Toronto. Uh, and I mean, I've certainly picked out some bookshops I want to visit. Uh, I don't think I'm doing anything more specifically literary, nor do I know if I've read anything set in Vancouver. Um but I often don't notice where things are set when I'm reading them beyond the country itself. Are there, what's what's some, one of the famous Vancouver novels I, I might have read? I don't think we have famous Vancouver novels. So many, so like, it's a limited market, right? So a lot of Canadian, especially modern Canadian fiction, with all of our publishing houses really having closed down here and 
having to go through U.S. stuff. Like it's you know, it's nicer when you set it somewhere else. You're a Canadian author who sets work somewhere else. Um, and I do love Mary Lawson, and one of my favorite living writers, who is technically yeah, technically Canadian. I think she's lived here for 40, 50 years. Uh, she's claiming book- her. She's Canadian. <laughs> she's Canadian. She's Canadian. And all her books are set in sort of generic middle of nowhere Ontario, I believe. Um, I can't remember if there's any specific Northern, yeah. towns or cities. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a few mentions but, of the north. Uh, so I will be taking uh, one or two of hers on holiday, even if I won't be going to the actual uh, locations of them. I'll at least be closer. Yeah. I'm going to give some thought to this like Vancouver set novel issue. Please do. If you can think of anything that I should buy while I'm there, I do like trying to find something from that that place whilst I'm there. Just even if it just goes on the shelf, it's a nice, I think it's a nicer souvenir than, you know, a vase or whatever. Something. Yeah. That, I mean, the only thing you know. I can really, like the only thing I remember doing in school that was sort of local was Obasan, but that was about Japanese Canadian internment. So it's mostly oh, okay. after <laughs> they get interned and are no longer on the coast. We've been talking about this a long time, actually. We should probably move yes. on, but we let's make our decision. Uh, and we do have three of us. We can have a definitive teal books decision about whether we prefer fiction or nonfiction for our travel inspiration. Um, Rachel, you've been quiet for a bit, so why don't you, you give us your decision first? I will go with I prefer fiction because I I like to associate my travels with, a, with the characters that I've enjoyed. Nice. Um, I think I'm going to go for non-fiction in as much as it's often author's biographies uh, or autobiographies that are the, the, the sole inspiration I have to have. But uh, I'm probably closer to that secret third option of not doing it at all. <laughs> and as the tiebreaker, I'm yes. going for non-fiction just because I like the variety of different stories I can get, but also just because the access is larger than relying yes. on translated fiction. <laughs> Excellent. And do get in touch with anyone who can think of the great Vancouver novel. So, yes, these two books that are both set just before slash into the Second World War, um, Eva Robertson's The Morning Gift and D.E. Severson's The English Air. Um, how about, Rachel, why don't you introduce us to the D.E. Severson and then Claire to the Ibbotson, if that sounds all right? That sounds great. Yeah. Rachel, sounds- do you want to kick us off? Yes, okay, so The English Air is set just before um, World War II and as it begins, 1939-ish, and it's set in a house in, I'm gathering it was Devon, it wasn't actually clear, um, in Britain where you've the uh, family, so there's Wynne who is uh, young and gorgeous um, obviously, as as they always are, as, as the young women always are in D. Stevenson novels, <laughs> and she lives with her very um, vague and ineffective mother again, classic <laughs> D. Stevenson mum, Sophie, and her brother in a very nice house that, and their father has died fairly recently, and their mysterious um, half uncle um, moves in. Dale, Dane, Dane. Um, Dane, yeah, who doesn't have a job but is always like mysteriously up to stuff. What's he really doing? No one knows. Um, and he lives in the house as well because um, Sophie can't possibly manage without a man. And um, the story kicks off when they're the son of Sophie's best friend and cousin, um, who is German, comes to stay. His name is Franz or Frank. 
And he's sent over by his high-ranking Nazi officer father to come and check out England and what's really going on down on the, the word on the street. Um, and obviously he arrives and falls in love with Wynne and um, everyone loves him. And it's basically what happens when war breaks out and things get upended for the whole family. I won't say more because I'll end up probably spoiling the plot. But <laughs> Thank you. And Claire? I'm going to sort of cheat and read out what I wrote about this a few years ago. But, um, <laughs> oh, great. So, yeah. Um, so, like the English air, the morning gift begins uh -huh. in 1938. <laughs> Same timeline. Uh, and it begins as Ruth Berger has been left behind in Vienna when her family flees to England. Unable to leave on her own, family friend Quinn Somerville conveniently shows up in Vienna and proposes a marriage of convenience that would let Ruth leave as the wife of a British national and make it into England. That all works out. They arrive in England. Ruth is reunited with her family. Quinn resumes his normal life of teaching at the university. And the lawyers begin the process of annulling the marriage. But, of course, it's not as simple as that. The end. The end. And I guess uh, one of the main distinctions between these books is that the E. Stevenson was written during the war, I believe. Was it 1940? Yes, 1940 no. versus yeah. 1993 yes. for The Morning Gift. Yeah. <laughs> so one of them certainly looking back uh, and one of them right in the midst of it. Um, and that was something I found really interesting starting The English Air, uh, how sympathetic uh, she is to mm -hmm. friends in particular but also to sort of ordinary german people in general obviously not super sympathetic for the nazis but i expected it in some ways to be out and out anti-german propaganda and there's certainly something i did find a little tough to swallow is how righteous and good every british person is who just wants the best for everyone and if pushed i think that's how she swung it yes. right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. she's like Ger german people are, are good but british people are perfect yeah <laughs> and i found that a little hard to swallow <laughs> um yes and i said yes i mean obviously uh but I did have to look it up being, is this really 1940? Because I mean, when we think about like, say the Mrs. Miniver film, which is you know, obviously very, very different from the book, but you know, again, British people are perfect, but every single German person is solely motivated by killing babies as far as I can tell from that. So it, was, I, it must, I don't know how well it did at the time, but it is interesting that Franz, whilst half German, half English, um, is certainly believes himself to be more German and is the half English thing is only really there to sort of sanitize him slightly um, in the eyes of the reader. Uh, whereas, yeah, the Eva Iverson is, is more willing to believe that not all British people are perfect. And I did appreciate that. I think, um, yeah, there's, there, she has a, a wider array of character traits available to her. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Stevenson was certainly working with on this book. I did, I did love at the, so, so, Ruth and her family in the English air are coming to England as refugees. That's the plan. Obviously, Ruth goes a little awry and she comes in different circumstances. But I loved it the, in the English air. How the, I've forgotten this part. At the beginning of the book, uh, the Braithwaite's, they're supposed to be welcoming a refugee, but they put them off in favor yeah. of Francis' yeah. visit. And then clearly forgotten forever. Like there's no refugee ever mentioned. <laughs> they do nothing in that world. Yes, I can, I can imagine it. <laughs> they're that um, kind of family certainly yeah yeah <laughs> uh 
from the title onwards, really, isn't it? That sort of family, but, you know. <laughs> it's uh, been in the May, and I, I've heard there are parts of the country that aren't just the countryside, but um, not in this book. <laughs> um, uh, Rachel, had, were you, had you read either of these before? I, I hadn't, and actually it's my first Eva Ibbotson. I've never read anything by her before. <gasps> I know. <laughs> I know, Claire. Um, I, she's been on my radar for a long time. I just haven't happened to pick anything up. But um, I was really pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed the prose. And, I mean, she writes beautifully, and the world she creates is very um, evocative, very powerful. I felt like I was in Vienna at the beginning. And... Um, it also what I find really interesting is that it's really hard for certainly for me I found it quite difficult to tell that it was written in the 90s it felt Mm -hmm. written in the style of the 40s um and I I could have easily believed it was a contemporary novel from that time um and I think it's it's a book that that it's obviously a romantic novel in the same way that Dee Stevenson's books all are but Whereas I found the English air just to be rather cringeworthy in in many places, um, the Morning Gift, while following many of the same tropes, manages to be much more convincing and less clumsy in it in its explorations. Um, something I, I find consistently irritating about D. Stevenson novels is <laughs> how it's considered to be endearing in a woman to be utterly useless at everything and (laughs) to a strong man to to help you get through things a lot of it I found unconvincing and ridiculous in terms of like um Dane's job and well it's not really a job is it but like that he can just do what he does and pull all the strings that he wants to pull and um, also that Franz can just, you know, hop over to Germany and hop back again in the middle of a war going on. Um, I don't know, the whole thing just seemed ridiculous to me um, and, you know, that everything just works out really smoothly. Um, it was, yeah, it felt to me like what I f- also found interesting in between the two is that The Morning Gift is obviously supposed to be a young adult novel and... Um, the English area. Well, that, that's an interesting question. We should talk about that. Well, mm-hmm. I, personally, I, I don't. I wouldn't say that it necessarily is. In certainly, I can't imagine any of my teenage students wanting to read it. But um, for me, the English air felt like something that's too simplistic to be read by adults. Um, and I would have said that was more of a young adult novel than. Um, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, well, Claire, you, you've got thoughts about the Iron Out novel thing. It seems go for it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the simplistic part of English air first. Um, sure, yeah. As we go in that, I mean, I agree. <laughs> I do think <laughs> it is still one of D. E. Stevenson's more interesting books. We're not working with like an incredibly high standard here, though, so like that's fairly easy. <laughs> but I do think I do think a fair amount of it is probably in response to the time she was writing, yeah. um, right? And the things that I think bother most of us is kind of you know the universal wonderfulness of the British in that book Mm -hmm. um I can understand that it would be harder to write with nuance for a book that was being published in 1940 um certainly more caustic authors than Stevenson had some weird books come out 1939 1940 before they kind of recalibrated and said wait Mm -hmm. no we can still be critical of our race even with the war going on Mm -hmm. so 
I'm going to give her a little bit of leeway on that one. Um, as for Ibbotson's novels, so when they were published, they were originally sort of targeted light adult books, but then got rebranded at various stages as young adult, once young adult became a thing, and then sort of have flipped back again. So I read, the, I found her when I was 12, probably. Um, and that's a good age, but I mean, like, mm. I think all of us were reading fairly adult things when we were 12, um, having, you know, known you guys now for what, 13 <laughs> years, um, oh yeah, right? Yeah. When we, we'd moved on from Agatha Christie and we're trying <laughs> to get whatever greats we could. So throwing this into the mix wasn't particularly uh, racy or strange. So I think I think she is good for for younger readers, but she's better for older readers because the the supporting characters, the humor all of that, it just lands better when you're older and you understand what she's doing and what she's set meaning when she's doing it. Yeah, I found it quite surprising. It was really only the size of the font and the margins in my copy that made me think, oh, maybe this is aimed at young adults and the, and the horrible cover you, got, actually. I remember seeing your picture on Instagram. You definitely had one of the, the young adult rebranded period ones. Yeah. They were not supposed to fall in love, dot, 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 is the tagline. So <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> Wow. I have a Arrow edition from 1994, and it is quite small font and normal margin sizes, and a watercolor <laughs> of, a, of a woman in, a, I can't even explain what period, clothing, uh, walking on the beach. <laughs> Definitely an inappropriate hat for period. <laughs> We're talking about covers. I put the cover of my do you see them to me English air on Instagram a while ago? And they've really got as close as they can without being sued to a picture of Julie Christie on the front in my <laughs> 1960s paperback. They have, I saw <laughs> and, uh, that. It was yeah. a bizarre book, bizarre picture for a book that is really centered about a man. Yes, he's, he's there in the background <laughs> looking off to the side, but thank, thank goodness yeah. we've got a beautiful woman on the front because otherwise who'd want to buy a book? Um, <laughs> I think Wynne is probably the least memorable part of the English air. So yeah, it's a yes. strange choice there. <laughs> well, she also, yeah, she also looks sort of like she's between two ages on the front. So it's like, which woman is it meant to be? Unclear. But maybe, I don't think um, you'd put Sophie on. I don't know. No, no. Maybe, I mean, maybe they didn't read the book. They just like stick a woman and a man on the front. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's been known to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, we did an episode a while ago on bite or no bite, and I've since found that such a useful way of sort of expressing mm. how I feel about certain authors. And the D.E. Stevenson book has certainly, for most of it at least, no bite. There's a little bit when we get yeah. into more of the soldiery, soldiering bit. Um, and whereas, yeah, the E.B. Everson, I've only read one other one. I read The Countess Below the Stairs, Countess Under the Stairs, one of those. Countess Below um, the Stairs, yeah. Yes, yes, which I really enjoyed. And I'd forgotten that she was such a recent writer. I was thinking that she was, you know, maybe 50s or earlier. Um, and it was one of those things with a central relationship between um, Quinn and Ruth that uh, I felt sort of aggrieved that I could see how I was being manipulated by Eva Ripperton in this sort of like <laughs> classic slightly emotionless or like withholding his emotions grumpy older man who wants the best for this woman who he's so frustrated with her because he knows that uh he, he knows best for her but she's all a little more sort of um impetuous but deep down loves him sort of i don't know that sort of hmm. jane Eyre, rochester 
stereotypical relationship. But what really agreed me is that it worked so well, and I loved them together so much. <laughs> this couple I was like, "No, Eva, this is, <laughs> I know this is your job, but it's working, and I'm furious." And <laughs> I know that Sarah Manning loves this book, and I could see why because uh, lots of the things she recommends have that sort of the. the, the she loves authors who are, and is indeed herself an author who is so good at chemistry between lead characters. Um, all the thunders just come out out here now, mm-hmm. um, and for long periods of the novel, they're not they don't really talk. They he's the professor at the place where she's studying, uh, and they've decided it's unprofessional for them to talk to each other, or he's decided that at least, um, and it sort of simmers away in the background uh, whilst other things happen. But um, it simmers in a way that I annoyingly fully bought into. <laughs> S- <laughs> I mean- same for anyone else. <laughs> I always, I don't know, I don't know how to say this politely. I always sort of feel like her, the chemistry between Ibbotson's like romantic leads is sort of secondary for me when I'm reading her books. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. That's great. We all love a happy ending. We're here for this. I am mostly here for her supporting characters, for the way she makes everything feel so vivid and so human. Like, I wouldn't want to read this book if, like, Uncle Mishak wasn't there or, you know, Miss Somerville, (laughs) Quinn's aunt. Like, I would not have any interest in this story without them. They are, the the world she creates around her characters is the reason I love her. And I, I do truly love her. This is one of my favorite books, yet still not my favorite book by her. Uh, Medinsky Square oh, wow. probably holds the first place in my heart. Yeah. Um, and yet I've read other ones more than that, even while still not being my absolute favorite. But for me, what she does so well is she creates that community, especially this one, especially the refugee community of all of these people tossed out of you know, Germany and Austria who find themselves in London, confused, you know, without people they love, without their careers, without the money, the homes that they're used to, and trying to figure out what to do in this alien place. Um, mm. I think she's very, very good. And that, of course, is the world that she grew up in herself, right, Ibbotson? So that was her family story, sort okay. of. Um, I mean, I think her father ended up in Scotland and her mother was in England because they had split before they came um, even, but you know, she ended up at boarding school in Devon before the war, but you know, she saw this refugee area. There's a really good, sweet article. I think it's still available on the Guardian online that she wrote back in like the early 2000s. But I think it was one of those campaigns for libraries. And she wrote about what the library meant to her uh, as a refugee child in London and the other people who she saw there and, you know, that, you know, what she says there are clearly things that she took as inspiration for characters or storylines in this book as well. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly Ruth, not rewrited that, but so going back to what you were saying, mm-hmm. Rachel, about um, D.E. Stevenson, women all being quite useless. Ruth is certainly very different to that. And it's, uh, if it had been published in the, in the time it's set, I think one of the things that would have felt very modern was her scientific interest. Did, mm-hmm. did that, that interest you with your love of, uh, you know, lady botanists from that period you know it very much did and i i loved like claire was saying i loved the richness of the characters i felt very much that the english air is all focused on the romance and trying to force us to care about these paper thin characters whereas in um the morning gift i really felt 
that I was reading about these people who had whole lives and that their romantic lives were not the centre of their existence in a way that they are in D. Stevenson's novels. And I love the depiction of the university and the life inside the university and also inside the museum at the beginning, that the couple of nights mm. she spends there and sleeps with the... Um, I can't remember what it is, but it's like some stuffed animal kind of gave me the yeah. creep. Um, and it's the the world of the music of music as well. And you know, we haven't mentioned Ruth's devotion to her her first love, who is her, her cousin Heine, who um, oh, oh uh, Heine's yeah. fantastic. Oh, He's also one of the worst people ever. <laughs> exactly, that's what makes him fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought actually it was so. Um, I was kind of blinded to it until the letter that he writes to her, um, basically being like, oh, yeah, hi, I know that um, you guys have just had to flee, but um, can you just, like, get me a piano? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, this is hilarious. How blind can you be? But it's it's lovely watching her grow and blossom and develop. And I guess in some ways that is what makes it a kind of young adult book because she is young and she does, it is a bit of a... Um, you could argue that it's um, a bit of a bildungsroman in that she grows up and realizes lots of things about the world and things about people that she she didn't know before. Um, and it is predictable and it is a bit cheesy, but it's um, it is beautiful. I read somewhere online, I can't remember where, that Eva Ibbotson said she wrote books for intelligent women with flu, and I do think that there yes, yeah. is <laughs> <to> that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say the one thing that I found unconvincing was the idea that anyone could ever have wanted anything to do with Heine. Like, <laughs> so, so torn up. She wanted like, well, to serve music. She found a way yeah. to serve music. <laughs> I think I already find music uh, snobs so uh, so unappealing that I was very ready to, <laughs> to to hate him even before he realized how awful he was. And he sort of makes it sound like he's been the prisoner of war camp where he's really just in this sort of... I think there, um, there's that, that chapter split where, like, Ruth, you know, thinks he's been caught and he's in a camp. And then it's yeah. him at the start of the next chapter and what his actual circumstances are and how he is protesting them. And yeah. I still think that is possibly some of the funniest work she's done <laughs> it was excellent um something i want to mention about do i know we sort of we slated it a bit but i did enjoy reading it it's uh, and she's quite self-aware there's a bit um where someone asks sophie about the book she's reading uh okay. class if it's interesting and she says yes no I mean, you wouldn't like it, dear. It isn't very good, I'm afraid, but it's the sort of book I like. It's about nice people and it ends properly. She marries the right man and they live happily ever after. And I mean, Dean Simmons is just <laughs> describing her own books, isn't she? I mean, in a, I think she knew what she was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little defensively, but I think in a, in a, in a fun way. And, you know, that's exactly what happens in this book. Although I will say, I will say for the English air, one of the things that drives me crazy is that everyone spends so much time saying, like France's parents' marriage was horrible, right? It was a mixed marriage. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah, so yeah. in love when it started. And that I mean, that was legitimate from both sides. And then it yeah. it went very, very badly. <laughs> and yet everyone's like, oh, well, you know, next generation, fine, whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah. no, I feel we like I feel forever. like we should really undig this more. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, I mean, well the, she yeah. left that English air, that was the issue. 
<laughs> well, but like Wynne starts trying to anglicize France very early. She, you know, he becomes mm. Frank, right? And she's like, no, no, you decided you're English now. And throughout the book, he's like, no, I'm actually German. Like, I, I will probably yeah. want to go back to Germany. Just, no, 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 not hearing that at all. Like, right through to the end of the book. <laughs> but yeah, what about the air? Um, whereas it, well, he, yeah, yeah. He he seems to think it's a terrible idea to expect him to move to England or Britain forever. Where, but he's quite he expects other people to move to Germany. Germany at the top of a hat. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, unquestioned patriotism in this book, I guess. But. I said it was interesting. Like, I mean, she did include some. I mean, obviously, it's it's a little bit of propaganda here. But you know, the things that she was picking out about life in Germany in the 1930s like you know because a lot of it is before the war actually breaks out and you know just Mm -hmm. talking about you know the changes to diet and things that were getting pushed through um and I think you know Frances aunt is it uh who lives in their apartment yeah Frances aunt and how she's you know not doing well on that and then talking about like the youth clubs and things that you know are starting to niggle him a little about the culture there Mm -hmm. um even before so I thought she did those better than might be expected. I thought she did those elements. I mean, as as Simon was saying at the beginning, like, you know, she's not anti-Germany or anti-German um, in this novel, mm-hmm. but those were handled yeah. fairly well. Yeah, they, I mean, he does have a remarkably quick transformation considering how um, indoctrinated he would have been. But, um, you know, it's just, he was just transformed by the by the goodness of all those British people we came across. <laughs> all, all good hearts. How brave and strong they all are. It's just <laughs> I wish I lived in that event. It must be amazing. <laughs> it's okay. And Rachel, you wouldn't have to do any work because no one, no, no woman is expected to do any work in that land. No, like, in my house and a strong man can come and, and live next to me and do everything for me. Um, yep. And, and you can bully the local policeman about where you want to park your car. Yeah. And it'll be crossing <laughs> on the street. Oh, you go ahead and do what you want because you're beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as you're the right class, let's not figure yeah. out. As long as you're the right class. Yeah, see, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, your life might be rather harder than it is today. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so obviously, Eva Ibsen writing out later, we see a bit more about rea- realities of war, although yeah, the war doesn't break out until quite late in the book, but we do see that stuff happening in Vienna earlier. But it was also, it is still quite sanitized, I guess. We do see some, you know, people have to flee. We see a building being just being ransacked and destroyed, but uh, but I guess it's not, it's not sort of a, a, a gritty, you know, here are the horrors well, I think of there's one novel, suicide but... mentioned. Um mm. One of the musicians yes, mentioned right. as having yeah. killed yeah. himself, um, but no, it it is sanitized and yeah, it, it's that suits the world of the book, yeah. I guess. Right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think it, yeah, it makes more sense. Um, and I do, I mean, I think, like I think of any five hundred page book, you could probably have made it shorter. I think there were bits in the middle where it was more about different. Your edition five hundred pages. Yeah, I thought he's got a big font and wide okay. margins. 500, 507 pages is my, is my edition. Uh, I am 362, it looks like. In okay. It's not a short book. Yeah, I kept because my Dave Simpson has got very small font and I, and it's I know, 220 pages. And I was, I was thinking, like, I'm sure these books aren't, <laughs> you know, one, one is not twice the length of the other one. I was trying to work out how, much, how close they actually were to each other. But yeah, I think it's probably about one and a half times the length of the English air. 
but yeah, I think some of the stuff about the rivalries in the university in the middle, I would have maybe trimmed down a little bit. But, um, but those are all I'm the, there all for the that. I, I am coming out. So okay. yeah, <laughs> I am there for all extraneous details about sheep <laughs> or you know people trying to conceive children. I'm I'm all there. <laughs> the secondary yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. storyline. I love the university thing because I feel like you know if we read the other books, as far as I can tell, no one ever, no woman ever went to university in mm, British fiction mm. and that doesn't sound right I don't know if it was I mean my grandmother was born in 1921 she was fully expecting to go to university her aunt had been educated um like past you know school level as well like it was just a an expectation for her generation mm, living mm. in Europe I don't I, I get the sense it wasn't an expectation for like middle upper middle classes oh, as no, much not, in, not in England no. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, uh, yeah, women couldn't have couldn't couldn't be awarded degrees until 1920 at Oxford. I'm not sure what it was for other universities. In, but, in uh, Cambridge, it wasn't until the 1940s or something ridiculous. Good lord, um, that's bizarre. Um, the University of London was the first to proffer degrees to women, um, but yeah, and certainly, I think in Britain, there's always been a real kind of, you know, and it's just like anti-intellectualism anti-intellectualism yes particularly for for women in terms of mm. it's not ladylike to want to be too educated because you don't want to be cleverer than your husband wow yeah. it's it's i thank god things have changed hopefully but it, it is it is just <laughs> yeah. an interesting cultural difference between like you know between the different areas because i my my I think Ruth is 20 when this book begins in 1938. So she would be three years older than my grandmother was. But, you know, Ruth is at had been studying at university and continues to study at university once she comes to England. And it was, yeah. you know, an ex if the universities hadn't all been closed in Czechoslovakia uh, after the <laughs> German invasion, my, my grandmother would have been going on uh, just like her friends would have. And but, I mean, at the same time, you know, her mother had had her debut in Vienna. It's, that's the that's the class norm there. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a very different very different world than England at that point. Yeah, and I, I was certainly glad to see those scenes that she was there. I think I for me they were more like how can she be close to Quinn at scenes <laughs> rather than all the extremes. They're helpful <laughs> in that way, but it does. Yeah. Also, I mean, it's not as contrived. And when you think about the fact that the family knows Quinn through her father, yeah, she is yeah. interested in her father's work. They work in the same field she wants to study um so it's it's less contrived than it might come across <laughs> as we're talking about it <laughs> that is true I mean, I mean my tolerance level for things being contrived in a in a romantic storyline is very high so <laughs> i wouldn't find it, <laughs> if it were ridiculous but um well, we've gone over the hour, so we probably should conclude. It probably won't come as a huge surprise. Well, maybe it will. Maybe everyone's going to say some things I won't expect. But I, I, uh, I think I did enjoy this when yeah, I posted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I yeah, I enjoyed both. Um, and it's actually I probably enjoyed them a bit closer to each other than it's sounding. But I did. Um, I will choose the morning gift, Claire. <laughs> I am, of course, choosing the morning gift. This was all an exercise just as an excuse to be able to talk about this book with you guys and make sure that you'd read something by Ibbotson. So it worked. It worked. It worked. <laughs> Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I did enjoy The English Air, but um, it was definitely, for me, above, way above um, and beyond as the morning gift. And I'm delighted, Claire, to have been introduced to Eva Ibbotson, and it will certainly not be my last. 
I think you will have lots of fun, Rachel, and you should definitely read Medensky Square because it's perfect. Okay. <laughs> perfect. Wow. It's, it's perfect. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Claire. It's been wonderful to have you back. Yeah, um, thank you. And yeah. Uh, in the next episode, as Rachel mentioned earlier, we're doing two novels by Jane Garden. That's Old Filth and The Man in the Wooden Hat. Is that right? Yes, The Man in the Wooden Hat. Um, and we look forward to talking to you then. But yes, again, thank you so much for being with us, Claire, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.